You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn with you to Matthew. Um, we're going to continue our series, Subversive Christmas. And uh, our hope through the series is to kind of through the, the holidays of eggnog and parties. And uh, I was in Home Depot, uh, the nativity scene with the Swedish Jesus, the blue-eyed, uh, very pale Jesus. Uh, Jesus living in the Middle East and 2,000 years ago probably wouldn't be that Swedish. Uh, but just a reminder that there's a weight and a beauty to this story, but sometimes we lose we lose it amid the uh, uh, America uh, version of Christianity. And that's not to beat up gifts and parties and eggnog and celebration. We're all for that. Um, but to kind of re-engage the story and see the just the the different angles in which we uh, see the story told and the and what it's trying to tell us of what this Jesus is and who this Jesus is and what Christianity really is um, all about and so this morning we're going to look at through the eyes of Joseph in Matthew's gospel so Matthew chapter one uh, first chapter of the New Testament let's look at that together I'll read that uh, starting in verse eighteen Matthew chapter one verse eighteen and here's what it says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and hear, uh, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And this is the word of God for us this morning. I'm just going to move this so I don't knock over Matt's stuff. Could get a little crazy up here. Um, so in the prophetic film, The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars, for all you Star Wars nerds, there's a famous line, whether you know the movie or not, you've probably heard this line before or seen it on a meme or on social media somewhere, someplace. It's when Darth Vader and Luke are encountering one another, the dark side and the light side. And what does Darth Vader say? Luke, oh my gosh, no one watches Star Wars. So this is a terrible illustration. Luke, I am your father. But what you don't know about that line is actually that's not the line. It's not Luke, I am your father. It's no, I am your father. And I know that's very important to you at this moment during the Advent season, but there is a point to this, is that so often we hear these lines, we hear these things, and actually if you go into the internet and you go down the rabbit hole, it's amazing how much we debate these lines in this, this movie. But the reality is there was information that was withheld from Luke. He thought Darth Vader was the one who killed his father, but rather he was his father. 
And as we look at the gospel stories, there is a point to this. There's different angles of reading the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all telling a unified story, but there's information that's withheld from us of what this Jesus is up to and what this God is up to. And when we encounter Joseph in Matthew's gospel, the angel shows up to reveal what God is up to and what he is going to do and what he is like. So in Matthew's gospel, we focus on Joseph. In Luke's gospel, we focus primarily more on Mary, and it's all for a purpose. It's every gospel writer has an agenda that they're trying to get across, trying to tell the story in a different way. It's a unified story, but the, imagine the camera just turning a little bit to a different angle and saying, okay, I want to focus on Joseph and his response to this Jesus, his response to this angel, his response to the story. Because it's a subversive story, and it's a beautiful story, and it's a deep story about a God who comes to redeem and restore all things. And, and what Joseph is getting is this special information, this revelation that wasn't shared to anyone else at the time. This is all new for him. He's just trying to be faithful to what he understands and how this, when this angel shows up, just like when Luke and Darth Vader have this battle, there's information that's withheld, but now it's like, oh, that's mind-blown. I had no idea you're my father. You could even say that Jesus is uh, God's son, uh, not Joseph's son, but we'll get into that in just a moment. But, but as the angel comes to Joseph, that's where I want to focus. What does he learn as the angel comes to Joseph? What is he saying to him? What is he saying about God? What is he saying about Jesus? Where is he saying about where it's all headed? So first this morning, I just want to look at just for a few moments are these names that are revealed by the angel, because this gives us a clue into what is going on and who this Jesus is and what this story is about. Because in ancient cultures, especially in Jewish cultures, names were everything. Uh, last week, Scott preached on the genealogies, right? And what's so subversive about the genealogies, here's all these names, but they're not the who's who of culture, right? People would read those genealogies and go, wait, this is the Jesus story? Like, these are the people that God is building his kingdom through? These are the losers of culture. These are sinners. These are tax collectors. These are women, right? These aren't the, the Roman leaders. Names were everything because names were about identity and who you were and what you were about and where you were from. And so to reveal a name was everything. It's not like today where we choose our children's name based on, you know, what's trendy at the time, right? Uh, sometimes we lose sight of that name, right? There's not as much rich history in our kids' names. It's kind of like, well, what sounds cool? What, what's a name where they won't get beat up at school, right? What's a name that doesn't rhyme with a body part, right? And so we pick our names accordingly. But here in the ancient culture, these names are everything. It reveals who they are and what they're about. And so the angel comes in verse 21, and we read... Says Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which she conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from his sins. Now, what's interesting about the name Jesus is that Jesus is a very common Hebrew name in the first century. It's Yeshua or Joshua. But see, we read that, and even those times ago, okay, Jesus, Joshua, not that big a deal. But for a Jewish person reading this, in Matthew's Gospels, very Jewish through and through, someone who knows their Old Testament backwards and forwards, what are they going to say? Joshua? Oh, I know Joshua. Joshua was the one who was going to lead God's people after Moses into the promised land. He was going to save them, right? 
So, so here's this Jesus, and his name is revealed as, as Jesus, as Joshua. The, the, the stories of the Old Testament are rattling around in their minds and their hearts, and they're realizing, oh, is he going to be like this Joshua that we know of that was going to lead God's people to the promised land, was going to ultimately save them? Well, part B, the Lord saves his name also because he gives it to us right here in the second half of the verse. says, she will bear a noun and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's not just a Jewish common name, Joshua, right? Like John, right? Or Paul or very average, ordinary names. There's something unique about this child. There's something that he is going to do that he's going to live into because names are everything. It's describing Joseph is beginning to realize this baby that is being born of the Holy Spirit is up to something greater and more profound than I realize. He's the Lord who saves, saves the people from their sins. Now, remember the context. This is in the first century where Jewish people are living under the thumb of Roman, the Roman Empire. They don't have a voice. They don't have freedom. They don't have peace, right? So the, the history of Israel, the history of the Jewish people has always been a people that lived under oppression, the people that didn't have a voice, the people always, they always felt like they were living in, in exile. And so here comes Jesus to say, I'm going to be the one that's going to save you and rescue you from the Roman Empire, but I'm going to even do something much deeper and much more profound. While it's not fair that you're living under Roman oppression, it's not fair that you're being treated poorly as you do for most of your history, but there's also this imprisonment, this rescue, this thing that is so sinister and deep that resides in the human heart that you need saving from. You need to be saved from your sins. There's a, there's a greater imprisonment that, that all the external things, Roman Empire is terrible. Yes, we should go, man, that's not right. That's not fair. Any people that are, are oppressed or pushed down. But here's the problem with empire. Another one will just come along. And we know from history, another one will just come along. Another one will come along. Another one will come along. It's all external. But this thing inside of every human that needs freedom, that needs forgiveness, that needs redemption is in all of us that, that ultimately keeps us enslaved. And here's the irony. The thing inside of us is actually what creates empires that want to crush people. That's the irony of ironies. The thing that needs to be forgiven, the thing that needs to be healed is from the inside. And it's why we have wars. It's why we have people that crush other people. It's why we have people that, that, that hold other people down just for the, the color of their skin or what side of the tracks they live on or, or the ways in which they vote because of the thing that lingers deep in every soul. The thing that Jesus came to save us from, our own scenes, that lingers deep in the human heart of every human that's ever been. And so this Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. And, and it's thinking it's important is that when Jesus comes in the first century is that religion in that day, at least the Jewish religion, all the religions around were, were kind of a mess. And they always have been because religion is really built on this idea. If we can fix the outside, everything will be okay. If we can just kind of move the spiritual furniture, right? If we can just have the right rituals and say the right prayers, right? And be holy enough. And that's what Jesus was constantly engaging in the gospels. It wasn't that the Pharisees were, didn't have a, a good intention of wanting to be holy, wanting to be right, but it was the way in which they went about it. By my rituals, by my life, by my giving, by my fasting, I'm better than you. Yet here comes Jesus who continually meets with the people 
the culture would say, no, thank you. Continually engages the people. He says, actually, it's the people that understand their need that are closer to me than you, right? We're always trying to fix the outside. If we just got the right advice, if we just did the right rituals, if we had the right practices, and it's not that those things aren't bad, if we just got the right diet, right? If we just voted for the right people, if we just had the right ideas and philosophies, right? If we just went to the right schools, if we just had the right jobs, it's all external. And yet the game of faith and the game that Jesus is playing is there's something deeper inside of us that needs healing and saving and forgiving and cleansing. It's more of an inside game than we realize, right? Many uh, years ago, um, I had the opportunity uh, to host a uh, AA Alcohol Anonymous group in my church. I might've told this story before, maybe I haven't, I'm not sure. Um, but it was a profound thing in my life. As a, as a young pastor, we used to have groups come in and through our church. And I had a couple of churches I served that would host AA groups. They'd meet at different times. And, and one time, the leader of this AA group um, invited me to come. And it wasn't because I was an alcoholic, but he wanted me to see what this group was about and what it was like. And I, I'll say this, church, it was a, a life-changing thing for me. And I still think about it 20 years later is that as I sat in this group, and it, you know, if you're not an alcoholic, you just say pass. And you, but you know, I'm listening to these, these stories Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And they share their pains and their struggles. I've been you know, sober for three days or three years or three months. And it was just this honest acknowledgement of this thing that, that, is, that is attached to me cannot be healed, cannot be fixed by mere willpower, that I've gone to the end of myself, right? And as the years have gone on, I've thought a lot about this, of the idea of addiction and sin, and they're very similar things. Because here's the thing, you can look at an alcoholic and go, well, they're addicted to alcoholic or they're addicted to drugs or, or what have you. But here's the, here's the reality, church. We're all addicted to something, aren't we? We're all addicted to something. It could be being liked. It could be shopping. It could be chocolate. It could be being the best mother or the best father or the best worker, right? It could be addicted to trinkets or hobbies or cars or money or what have you. We're all addicted to something. And that's the reality and the nature of sin that it gets its hold on us. And it becomes this thing that we give sacrifice to. We, we ritualize. We give even religious affection to. That's why I always say life is too short to pretend we're not religious. We're all religious. It just looks different. It may have a Jesus name on it, or it may have an alcoholic name on it, or it may have a shopping name on it, or it may have a political party name on it. But we all sacrifice and bow down to these things that grab a hold of us like an addiction. Because there's something more sinister going on underneath that God has come to redeem and God has come uh, to save. And, and the, the Christmas story and the gospel story is about God coming to fix what we couldn't fix in ourselves. That's why it's really good news to forgive us because we couldn't forgive ourselves. Someone had to come from the outside. It's why the, why the person in AA, one of their steps is, I came to the end of myself and realized that I needed something divine whether you name it Jesus or something else, but I can't do it on my, by myself, on my own. It's too deep. It's too much. And yet here's Jesus coming from the outside, the, the one that was unexpected to come and redeem, that this was Jesus' mission to show his people and to show the world, I've come to save them from their sins. And, and I love this take on the Christmas story through the eyes of Joseph, because here's Joseph. What does it say in verse 19 or 18? 
Um, when his mother Mary had been uh, betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He's living in a shame and honor culture that at this moment thinks, my wife's cheated on me, she's pregnant, I'm just going to quietly divorce her and move on, right? And yet the story is, the angel shows up and says, Actually, Joseph, there's something else going on here. There's something more profound going on here. He thinks it's do the right thing, do the quiet thing, move on with my life. And he says, actually, inside your soon-to-be wife's womb is the Savior of the universe who's going to forgive his people of their sins. And isn't that why the Christmas message is so subversive? Because the moment we think we have God nailed down, the moment we think we have him in a nice, neat category, and he's on my side, and he's on my tribe, and he goes to my church, and he's part of my people, the moment we kind of think we have God in a box, he always seems to surprise us with more deep and profound things. The moment we, we say he's this or he's that, he goes, no, 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 no. Joseph thinks he's going to divorce his wife quietly. I'm reminding him that God is in his wife's belly, and he's going to save the whole world from their sins. Second name. Not only is there, does it show, the angel shows that it's Jesus, but he also builds that out and, and grabs onto the Old Testament and says that he's Emmanuel. What is this Jesus like? Remember, these names have, have meaning. They have weight. It's identity. What, are they, what, is it, what does it mean? What is he going to do? What is he going to be like? Who is this Jesus? Well, you notice in verse 22 and 23, he says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Isaiah 7, 14, he draws Matthew being a good uh, student of the Old Testament scriptures, draws from the Old Testament. Again, this, this prophetic word, Matthew 7, 14, the Emmanuel, the God with us is now going to be in Mary's womb. Now, I think what's really important is to understand that Joseph, being a Jewish man and people of that day, this Jewish gospel is that Jews saw God in such lofty terms. He was not a God you could relate to on the ground. He was not a God that was personal by any means. He was so lofty that you didn't even write all of the names of God lest you be cursed, right? So their idea of God was this lofty God, but they also had this other view of God that that in this time and place made a lot of sense is that they believed he'd be like a David-like warrior king that would come and squash their enemies, mainly at this time, the Roman Empire. That's the king we're looking for. That's the Messiah that we're looking for. And it was absolutely, I think, confusing, even in the Roman Empire, the early church, is that they thought Christians were atheists. Why? Because they didn't have statues of their gods. Didn't exist. I mean, they barely had, they didn't have walls. Like, I mean, they, they just gathered wherever they, they gathered. They didn't have this institution or this big religious machine. It was like, are these atheists? I mean, they don't have gods that the people bow down to or, or statues, right? They just kind of roam around and gather and you know, bread and cup, and it's kind of a strange group of people. Where's their gods to bow to? And, and so at this time, they had this lofty view of God. So this idea that God would move in and become human is like, no way. That's not how this works. Our God's not going to be like that. And so Matthew, writing this gospel, 
draws on Isaiah 7, this prophetic word that happened 700 years before Jesus ever walks the earth and says, this Emmanuel, this God with us, would be born to a virgin. It would have to be a miraculous, divine thing. And Jewish people, even in that day and even today, don't read Isaiah 7.14 as, that's Jesus. He did what he said he was doing. He came. He, it came exactly the way it was supposed to happen. They can't believe that there's a God, Emmanuel, that, that is with us. But here is Jesus. This is why this gospel is so subversive. Here's Joseph going, I'm going to divorce my wife quietly because that's the right thing to do. If, I, if this goes forward, I am cooked. Right? My community is not going to handle it. They're going to lose their minds over this. And yet the angel comes up and says, no, Joseph, actually, there's something more going on here. There's an Emmanuel, God with us, that wants to know us and wants to save us and wants to redeem us, and a God that you can know as well. And what's so astounding is that when you look at all the different camera angles of the gospel, gospels, I should say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that when you get to John, you read John's uh, Christmas story, and what does he say? He expands it out even more. He says, this Jesus has always been. This Jesus didn't just come along in in Galilee 2,000 years ago, but he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Come it. This God, he was God who put on flesh, not flesh who put on God. He's the God who's always been. That's the, the narrative. That's the, the story. It's what we, we believe, what the church historically has always believed. It wasn't God playing a trick. It was the God who was always there, stoops down into sinful, broken humanity and puts on flesh for us. Becomes what you and I are. Becomes the creator, becomes a baby. Isn't it interesting, of all the ways God could have revealed himself, he reveals himself to humans, but he doesn't come 30 years old, fully formed. He comes as a baby. Babies are eternally relatable, aren't they? Like, has anyone like met a baby and just been like, oh, gro- oh gosh, get that thing away from me. I mean, if you do, you're a psycho. But, I mean, they not, might not be that good looking. I mean, the one thing they don't tell you about your kids is like, they're not that good looking when they come out. Maybe yours, you know, got through, but they're kind of beat up and banged up, and, but they're beautiful, right? Got made in God's image. Is that too honest? Okay, sorry. My kids aren't in here, are they? Okay. Um, but you see this baby, and it's relatable, right? Because that's where we all start, right? We all understand. This is where I began. This is where you began, right? There's a, a starting point. There's a relatability to a baby. I see Kirsten in the back who, who's worked with babies for years, right? I mean, it's, it's this reality that that's where we all come from. It's where it all begins. And so Jesus comes as this baby. And, and I think it's, and I'm, don't call me a heretic, but, but some would argue that the greatest m- miracle of, the, of Christianity is the resurrection, which is an absolute amazing miracle. But what about the incarnation? What about Jesus becoming a baby, becoming human? Because that's where it begins. I love the way J.I. Packer says it. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any child. Jesus had blowouts too. 
just so you know. If you're a parent, you know what that is. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. So we can say a lot of things about God and Christianity and the church, but the reality is that God comes as a baby, and that's more relatable than you can ever imagine. That God stooped down. He was fed. He wiggled. He learned how to speak. He learned how to walk just like you and I do. And that's why the next part of that name is, is Jesus, the God with us, the us part. It's the humanity part of Jesus, that he was God. Yes, fully God. He was, he, he was God who put on humanity, but he was a human. He put on flesh. He identifies with us. And I think it's so important that we understand that because Jesus doesn't come as an angel, He doesn't come as a demigod or or some other kind of weird, fantastical creature. He comes as the most relatable creature on the planet, someone we could relate to. He was born the way you and I were born. He feels the pains you and I feel and the joys that you and I feel. Like somewhere along the line, we got kind of weird with Jesus and God. It made him do this, like, he doesn't feel, he doesn't have emotions, he doesn't know what's going on. He's just kind of this God with this big beard. He just kind of sits on a throne, and he's pissed at everybody, and he's throwing down thunderbolts, and he's killing everybody. Like, and yet, here's Jesus as a baby, feeling all the stuff you and I feel, feeling hunger and need and desire and all these things. Yet, with, without sin, we know that. We'll get to that in a moment. But I love the way, the way Hebrews says, right? He, he gives us this picture of Jesus, this high priest that, that can forgive us of all of our sins. Yes and amen. Who is the all-knowing, all-wise, all-omnipotent, sovereign God of the universe who can rule and reign. But he also says this in Hebrews 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he became weak. Because he entered into the world. Because he's been exactly where you are. He knows what you're going through every single day because he took his own medicine. Yet in every, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I love that he puts that. Why does he put that? Because he goes, Jesus knows, come to his grace, come to his throne with grace, run, right? He understands, he knows our weakness, he knows our temptations, he knows our struggles, he knows our fears, he knows our doubts, he knows all of it because he's been there. Yet he was without sin. Now, for the last, I think it started maybe when I went to seminary, it could have been a little bit before, is that, I often thought about our creeds as a church, our confessions as a church, that historically the church has had these different creeds and confessions. And one of those that most Christian churches have is the Apostles' Creed. You're probably familiar with it. But I remember I was in a creeds and confessions class years and years ago, probably 17 years ago now. And we read in the Apostles' Creed, you probably know it, who was conceived, Jesus, from the Holy Spirit, was born of the Virgin Mary. Got it? Okay, born of the Virgin Mary, exactly what we're talking about. Comma. Then where does it go? who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Isn't that an interesting comma? Do you catch where I'm going with this? He was born, and then he died. He was born, and then he died. What about in between? Does that mean anything? (laughs) Right? Like, it's important. It's the gospel message, yes and amen. But what about his life? His life has nothing to teach us. 
that even Paul in Romans would say that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, that we're be, he comes to teach and he comes to heal and he comes to proclaim the kingdom of God and live in a particular way, actually to show us what humanity looks like and how we should live our lives, how to relate to God, how to relate to our neighbor, how to show love even to our enemies. It's like we sawed off Jesus' life and got right to his death. What does his life have to teach us? It has so much to teach us. And I think that's why we have a lot in the church is a lot of people that can say yes to the creed and I believe and all these things, but their lives are no different. They haven't been transformed from the inside out. They live just like everybody else. They think like everybody else. There's no difference. There's no Jesus, Jesus-y stuff in them. And that's not to beat anybody up in this room, including my, myself, because I know I need God's grace. And I know, man, I am slow to, on the path of sanctification as all of you. We are inching closer and closer to holiness, but man, you should have seen me 25 years ago. That guy, you don't want to be in a room with that guy. So I praise God for that for all of us, but there's something that happens when we lose the humanity, the us, the Jesus, the God with us who is transforming us from the inside out. His life matters as well. He shows us what it's like to commune with God and to love God and to love our neighbors. Don't miss that part of the story. And the with us, the with us is a beautiful phrase. We, we see that Jesus is God, yes, and he's human, yes, but he's with us. And again, this idea of Jewish people conceiving of this idea that God would want to be with us would have been Absolutely heretical and crazy. When Jesus calls the Father Abba, this Aramaic word that means father or daddy, these intimate terms, the Jewish people lost their minds. You can't talk about God like that. That's too close. That's too too near. He's he's lofty, right? He's he's unknowable. He's somewhere out there. He will come and judge the the earth, and he will come and destroy his enemies. But you you can't talk about a God like Daddy in these intimate terms. When Jesus says, "Come, little children, come to me," giving us a picture even what the Father is like. Come sit on my lap. What Daddy's going to turn away his own kids? A monster that doesn't have time for their kids. But a good father says, come. And they come with, with faith, they come with trust, they come with awe, and they come with a wonder, right? And he meets them there. But this idea with, that God would be with us would have been absolutely crazy. And here's what's beautiful about Matthew's gospel is that it starts with the Emmanuel, the God with us. And it also ends with the Emmanuel, God with us. When Matthew gives the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28, at the end of the uh, book, it says, all authority in heaven and earth given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he also says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am the God with us. Matthew is doing that very intentionally. The, the God who has always been the creator God, the word that made all things, that is sustaining all things, holding all things together. The God who moved into human history in the baby, in the flesh, in Jesus is also saying, as I send you out to, to go and make disciples, I'm going to be with you still. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be scared that the king is with you, that wherever you are, whatever you're up to, whatever you're challenged with, whatever you're struggling with, even in this, this 
gathering this morning, know this, that God is with us. He has not changed. His promises are still true. The same Jesus who was born 2,000 years ago is the same God who says, I am with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You can try to outrun me. You can try to hide from me, but you cannot outrun the God of the universe. So what are just a couple implications of, of this Christmas story according to Joseph? I think there's a couple. There's probably... 8 million we could come up with. Uh, I'll just say two. I think because of this story and the way we see God meeting Joseph and how he's revealed himself as this Jesus, this God with us, this Emmanuel, the the one who will save his people from his sins, is I think it means that we have unending hope now and forever. Is that the the incarnation of Jesus says, says a couple things. It says one, that God is holy, and it says another thing, that God is loving. Right? God is holy because he doesn't brush sin under the carpet. He doesn't brush evil under the carpet. He's moving into 2,000 years ago to the Roman Empire that is oppressive, that is killing people, that is oppressing people. He sees it all. He knows it all. There's a religious system that's broken and fallen on his head. He moves into human history. He moves into our lives knowing there's sin and evil in us and around us everywhere. It's tinged. It's marked every wall, every part of creation. He doesn't minimize any of it. He's a good, righteous, holy God that's not going to let sin have the last say. And all the ways we've made a mess of our lives, all the ways we're living in exile because of our our sin, all the disordered loves, personal and corporate, all these things, God is holy and God is willing to forgive and to heal and to save us from those things. But God is also loving because he's loving enough to heal our souls, to save us, to do something we couldn't do for ourselves. We need a God who's perfectly holy that can deal with sin. He's not just a human. He's not just a rabbi, but he's God who can forgive sins. But we also need a God who's perfectly loving, who who comes to us, who meets us, who is the Emmanuel, the God with us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what's so astounding He does everything. He is the just and the justifier. He he makes it all work together. That's why 1 John, again, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, and you could just hear it on every page when you read his letter. Here's Jesus, who's John, who was part of his inner circle, walked with Jesus, the disciple that Jesus loved. And you hear him write about this Jesus after after the fact and what he encountered. And I just love the way John describes uh, Jesus, and here, here's how he describes his love in 1 John chapter 4. Probably a familiar passage. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then if you go down to, uh, let me skip down to verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Isn't it interesting he doesn't say we ought to love God back? He doesn't say that. He says we ought to love one another. I mean, we should love God, yes. God has called us to love God with all mind, heart, and soul, and spirit. But here he says, if you've encountered the love of Christ who laid his life down even before you loved him, it's expressed in the love of others and your brothers and your sisters and those around you. I find that fascinating. That's not the point, but 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's something about as we love in very imperfect ways that God meets us and shows us a little taste of what his divine love is like. Because true love has no strings attached. Like if you love your spouse only when they do well, you're not loving them very well. <laughs> like I love them when they, you know, do my laundry. I love them when they go grocery shopping for me. I, I love when they, you know, have my soup ready on my you know, recliner when I come home. I and mean, that's every night for me. I mean, I don't know how your house is, but um, no, it's more like kids swinging from the chandelier and just, you know, chaos and just a lot of prayers and like casting out demons. No, but, but that's reciprocal. That's transactional. That's not grace. That's, I love you because I love you, not for what you do for me or how you respond to me, but, but, but just for who you are. And that's a little glimmer into what God's love is like. We love other people, not because they're worthy, not because they're owed it or they're deserving. It's because God has loved us already, and that love wasn't deserved or owed to us. It's all grace. So our response is, I'm loving you the way God loves me, and I'm an absolute train wreck. That's why there's hope now and forever, even when we fall on our faces. The incarnation tells us that God is with us even when we stumble. There's forgiveness, there's hope. Even when the world is falling apart, there's a Christ who's redeeming and restoring even the entire cosmos. I always find it fascinating that when Jesus healed people in the gospels, he wasn't selective. Do you ever notice that? He doesn't give them a morality, you know, checklist or exam or quiz and go, hey, can you uh, fill out this form first? I just want to see what your beliefs are. Uh, what did you do last night? Right? Jesus heals all kinds of different people. And I think in that healing, it's telling us, it's winking, nodding, going, this is what the kingdom of God is like for people that are undeserving of God's healing. He doesn't go, hey, Who's the best people in the culture in the ancient world? How can I heal them, right? How can I help them? Where are those people? He goes, no, I come to the sick. I come to the, know, to the people that know their need, who need God's grace and God's forgiveness. And I think it's also important for us when we think about the hope now and forever is to kind of lean into a little bit more of this idea of the cosmic Christ. This is John's way of saying it, John 1. Is that if God has always been, if he's the creator God that, yes, moved in the neighborhood 2,000 years ago, I get it. But if that God has always been and he moved in the neighborhood 2,000 years ago, what are we freaking out about? God is always with it. If the creator God who, who made the heavens and the earth and made protons and electrons and every cell in your body and every nerve ending and sunrise and sunsets and puppies and guacamole, that kind of gracious, good God, you don't think he understands what you're going through or where you're at or where the struggle is or where the doubt is. He's always been, he's not shocked by anything. And yet he is with us. Hope now and forever. God, Jesus is making all things new. And he's always been. He's not shocked by anything. And then last which I think this really is highlighted in the response that Joseph has in the Christmas, at least his Christmas story in Matthew, is it gives us the courage and the comfort to suffer and follow Jesus. Joseph needed extreme, deep courage to do what the angel wanted him to do. I mentioned already, this is a shame and honor culture, that if his wife was pregnant without 
you know, they're not even married yet. They're going to be like, well, she's an adulterer. She's, something's going on. And to just listen to the angel and do what the angel said, there's no hesitation. And Joseph, did you notice that? There's no wrestle with him. Like I know Mary gets celebrated as, you know, the mother of Jesus and, and all the, and she's a wonderful. But you see Joseph just in this humble, I'm not sure what's going on here. I'm just going to divorce my wife. Here comes the angel. Here's this Emmanuel who's going to save us from our sins. He's like, okay, I trust you. Takes extreme courage to respond to God in this way. He's going to be ridiculed for his faith. He's going to be laughed at and mocked. Like, there's that guy's marrying an adulterer. Oh, yeah, God's in her belly. Yeah, okay. But Jesus suffered in every way as well. And Jesus, it says in Hebrews 2, it's why we can find comfort in this, is that in Jesus in, says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He became human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. I love that text. To make propitiation for the sons of the people. He wasn't some angel or demigod. He was human in every way. He became like his brothers, his sisters, like us. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There's that language again. Because he was human and took on flesh, he understands when we suffer. And he suffered with us and for us so that whatever we are walking in, we can have the courage to continue to follow Jesus, whatever comes our way. Because just like Joseph, it wasn't going to be cool to follow this God in his time and place. It's never cool to follow Jesus. Like we try to make it cool. Like maybe we have you know better music, or we just you know use a lot of acronyms and you know do kind of cool stuff. Like we can kind of you know make Christianity cool. It's like any any religion that say, hey, come and die, and take up your cross. Like that's just going to be a hard sell to make it cool, right? But the cool part, if you want to use that language, is that God comes even when life is falling apart. We have too much of a message of, well, I just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. And you'll have a Lamborghini and you'll never get cancer and your family will be perfect and your wife will have soup ready for you on your you know, couch when you come home. Like all this nonsense. Or a God that says, life is difficult. The world is difficult but I'm with you right in the mess and I'll never leave you or forsake you. And I'll give you the courage to trust me in the darkest hours, in the hardest hours. You know why? Because I've been there. Jesus doesn't speak as someone who's naive. My wife and I lost a child. You know our story. Some of you know our story. It was always a great attempt for people to kind of encourage you and be like, well, I know what it's like to lose someone, you know, I got divorced and, you know, or I, you know, lost my grandma who was 99, you know, or whatever. And they, and they were trying hard, but it was just something when you, you never walked with people that actually have lost a child. It's a different reality. It's a different thing. But when you met that person, they go, you just kind of nod and go, yeah, I know what that's like. Whatever thing you're walking in, God goes, yeah, I've been there. I know what it's like for my friends to abandon me. I know what it's like to be poor. I know what it's like for people to hate me. I know what it's like to feel physical pain, worse pain than you've ever experienced. I know what that's like. 
because he's our Emmanuel, he's our God with us who became human for us, that we can trust him even in our darkest hour. And the beauty of the gospel at its apex is that the cross proves it. The cross doesn't leave us in the dark and just go, yeah, it's kind of this nebulous idea of, yeah, love and peace, and Jesus kind of came and did some things and said some wise things. But actually, in the cross itself is that we see this holy God moving into human history. We see this loving God moving into human history and proving his love for us. You remember when Jesus was suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane? Drops of blood, drops of tears. That's not a stoic God who's like, well, I'm God. I don't feel things. I'm going to the cross. God, take this cup from me. But what we see in Jesus is a God who was willing to do that, who had the courage to do that. Why? So when we think about having courage to suffer and to follow Jesus and to find comfort in Jesus, it's not looking at ourselves. It's actually looking at him, the one who had eternal, ultimate courage that did it for us. We keep looking at him. Always. And every week we have this beautiful picture, tangible picture, this bread and this cup of looking at him, gazing at him, remembering that he came and he died and he rose again and he shed his blood for us to forgive us and to cleanse us and give us a new identity and a new hope now and forever. It's not nebulous and naive. It's not uh, uh, general. It's particular that this is love. This is how love was manifest when God laid his life down. He says, I want to show you what it looks like. 